You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. They aim to do more than just protest. They aim to shut a city down. May Day, 1971, was a deliberately non-top-down protest against the Vietnam War, organized out of Georgetown University, but involving national groups, groups who by this point in the student anti-war movement in 1971, you had 67, 68, 69, 70, a lot of years there for people to start to bitter, bicker and split up, didn't always agree. Too much dissension between who would be leading to have one leader. Instead, May Day 1971 was based on a simple idea, and posters at the time, which were plentiful from different sources, and posters at the time expressed it, if they will not stop the war, we will stop the government. On Friday, May Day leaders unveiled a new strategy at the Department of Justice. Demonstrators moved in in waves to block entrances. The manual instructed units of 10 to 25 people to sit down and pass the pipe and play music until arrested. And it was also part of a coordinated campaign that would involve a rock concert, smaller protests, smaller sit-ins around the Capitol, and a large kind of more traditional protest, April 24th, which was held, a mass mobilization against the war. But the idea was that it wouldn't stop, that it would continue into from April to May. One poster with the big words May Day, along with people with fists raised protesting in big, bold letters drawn in marker and printed in red ink, explain what would happen. May 3rd and 4th, each region or national constituency group will have assumed the task of interfering with the functions of specific bridges, traffic arteries, or government buildings in Washington, D.C. in the 7 to 9.30 a.m. rush hour. The manner is determined by each group, but the overall but the overall discipline will be nonviolent. And the spirit, joyous and creative, while the tactic is disruptive. The 21 spots that were going to be blocked was well known. It was published in the Georgetown Hoya newspaper with a map, was published on many flyers, no doubt. Um, Metropolitan D.C. police, the mayor, and the Nixon administration were quite aware of what was going to go on these days. What they didn't know, however, is who exactly would be doing it and at what times. There's two other things to notice to note about the May Day plan. It was made clear, we strongly discourage random acts of violence or trashing of property in Washington. Secondly, as part of a national moratorium on business as usual, we will march and encircle the Capitol building, and this is key, insisting that Congress stay in session until it has ratified the People's Peace Treaty. This is 1971, and what the People's Peace Treaty was, anti-war students in the United States and Vietnamese students had actually gotten together and worked out terms for a treaty to end the war, and they wanted Congress to vote and ratify on that treaty. Um, treaties are normally presented by the president to the Senate, but, you know. So this May Day event is not as well known as some of the other protests. There was a protest a year before that 
brought in hundreds of thousands of students right after the Kent State killings. And that also shut down the city in a sense. But in 1971, this is less of a, a protest in terms of the number of people, but more in terms of the activities. 25,000 activists descended on Washington, D.C., some of them from Georgetown University, but also from different locations. They shut down bridges, shut down traffic. The idea was to shut down, it's kind of a whack-a-mole theory that you would shut down one area and then leave before police could respond. And some of these might just be a group of, say, four people holding hands. And as soon as there was a police presence, they'd either be arrested and moved or they'd run or or what have you. They did their work and on to another site. This was all deliberate. Rather than have one organization or one mass of people, the May Day plan called for affinity groups, five to 15 people coming in waves. And as one was arrested, another one would come in. This part's key. Activists had brochures. Many of them attended training sessions. By now, you have some activists who have spent four years demonstrating against the war at different places. Rene Davis, who had been one of the Chicago Seven who had been arrested, is one of the leaders of this organization. He's going to end up getting arrested for this. They had brochures on how to use nonviolent tactics. Indeed, on May 3rd, The May Day starts, and federal employees are indeed delayed in getting to work. Famously, three congressmen had to canoe across the Potomac to get to the Hill. But Nixon responds quickly to this. He's aware of it. He wants hourly reports. He treats it kind of as a war. He will make all decisions regarding the use of force. And the first thing he sees is there are thousands of students in the mall, because even if it is kind of a disorganized rally, you still find students in clumps. And he helicopters troops into the Washington Mall to sweep away. And eventually, thousands of students are herded into RFK Stadium, football stadium, and detained there. As one participant in May Day said, anywhere you stood, anytime you sat down, you could be arrested. So you had to keep moving. Some 14,000 would be arrested. Dr. Spock called the RFK Center and a concentration camp. Conditions are lousy there, but most are only kept for a day or so. And then May Day's interesting because on one hand, and I think this is the reason it doesn't get as much in the history books as Woodstock or some of the other Kent State, some of the other protests, because it was seen as non-effective. Well, it's only 25,000 people. You had rallies that had, you know, half a million and also that many of the residents of D.C. might be sympathetic with the students, certainly sympathetic when they're arrested. D.C. residents heading over to RFK Stadium and throwing supplies over the wall. But in terms of their actions, uh, famously, a Washington Post reporter uh, said that two of the garbage cans were stolen from her yard. And obviously, any protest then or now that involves blocking traffic is never very uh, a good way to win the support of motorists. But in terms of its effectiveness, here's what Richard Helms, a later CIA director, said about the effect within the White House. It was a very damaging kind of event with the arrests and the howling about civil rights. Kissinger says later that all of these protests combined would indirectly spur on the Paris Peace Accords. Those who participate in the day's events feel that May Day was significant in letting the administration know there was going to be no let-up. It was going to get worse if the Vietnam went on into 72 and 73. Here's what the Philadelphia Inquirer said about May Day. The May Day 1971 demonstrations in Washington, a long series of actions that kicked off in late April with metal-throwing protests by disgruntled Vietnam vets, including future presidential candidate John Kerry, are arguably the most important U.S. protest that you've never heard of. Despite the shocking scenes of military units rolling through Washington and clashing with hippies as they erected crude barricades and the mass arrests, much of America was exhausted by 1971. Yet many think the protests sped the end of the war, set the stages for Nixon's Watergate downfall. The reason? 
behind that statement is that Daniel Ellsberg was at these May Day events and he's going to release the Pentagon Papers and some of the actions taken around him trigger Watergate and create new templates for both civil disobedience on the left and militarized tactics by police that are still in place. Um, why bring all of this up? I talk about May Day to demonstrate that it's common for protests to envelope the symbol that is the national government. This is not uncommon at all to your people like talk about. Let's capture Washington. Let's take Washington. Let's march on Washington. like, And that certainly we have to be aware that the right to redress the government is fundamental and that often that is an in-person redress that it, it must be a visible event to show that something is wrong and that large amounts of people believe something is wrong. It's enshrined not only in the Bill of Rights, freedom of assembly, freedom of speech, but it goes to the core rights to petition the king that go back to the rights of Englishmen, the Magna Carta, the battles with the Stuart kings that cemented the right to speak in parliament, at least to speak to representatives and to petition the king and to not be endangered for doing so. These clauses, you'll note, are put into the Constitution along with other clauses that are already there. And yes, some of the people at the time thought that's all you needed were the first clauses that said, hey, the people will elect representatives to the House of Representatives every two years. You could stop there and say, there's no reason for anything else. If you have a problem, just go to your congressman or congresswoman's office. But now we know that that's a foolish belief because what if the representative has gotten too far away from your interests to really represent you anymore. And we have such large um, congressional districts in particular. But it was also a concern then that this could happen. Here's Thomas Jefferson. The executive power in our government is not the only, perhaps not even the principal object of my solicitude. The tyranny of the legislature is really the danger most to be feared. James Madison. It is of great importance in a republic not only to guard the society against the oppression of its rulers, but to guard one part of the society against the injustice of the other part. Justice is the end of government. It is the end, meaning the desire, the destination. It is the end of civil society. It has ever been, and it ever will be, pursued until it be obtained, or until liberty be lost in the pursuit. These are not only quotes from James Madison and Thomas Jefferson, they are quotes from those people that Alexis de Tocqueville decided to include in his democracy of America that he liked them so much. And he puts it in a chapter about what's fundamental to keeping democracy alive. So we cannot, in a discussion of January 6th and horrible events of that day, where you literally have people attacking the U.S. Capitol seeking to do damage to it, seeking to attack police officers protecting it, and with intent to do harm to representatives of the government. Um, we can't allow that to, to go so far as to say that uh, it's wrong to redress a government. And even if that's done in a in-person physical form, which is the, still a very common form, an important form of speech. And I'm going to run an episode that I did back on January 7th, um, really consumed by the events. And I only included at that time on my Patreon or premium, premium podcast service, as it wasn't in real finished form, that talks about the history of some of the disruptions in the Capitol in the past. And it's not uncommon. But really what happened on that day was uncommon in that you had desires to go after a government and to stop um, an event. Now, I will just say this. I mean no false equivalence when I talk about May Day, but I think it is fair to say that they had some ideas that you could consider wrong. Everybody's feelings about Vietnam aside, their logical conclusions of the May Day operators are anti-democratic in that you are theoretically intending to keep Congress in session until they pass the People's Treaty. That is, you know, if you take it to its logical extent, you're not letting them leave until they do what you want. Is that slightly better than attacking them for to stop them from doing something you don't want? Of course, 
You could say that the Vietnam protesters at this point have something like 73% of people who want out of Vietnam at the time you're getting to 71. They're expressing a very popular opinion, even if the form they're doing it is not always popular. You're dealing with groups that have peace marshals, that have uh, medics, that have are organized with radios at the time with the very intention of trying to get nonviolence as opposed to the opposite. We have people in kind of bulletproof outfits so that they can and, and bear spray so you can get past barriers and get into the building that much quicker. I mean, obviously, there are great differences and there's but the largest difference is in the response. I mean, May Day was quickly dealt with with overwhelming force. January 6th was not. And that last action, the inaction of the executive, inexplicable or maybe more frightening, explicable, (laughs) is really how you have to compare and contrast what happened in January to any other event. We just never want to get lost that two things that, you know, redress of government is so important. The ability to speak and protest even is so important. So much history of Supreme Court decisions supporting the right to speech. The rise in a more conservative court has actually led to an increase. One of the, one could argue, one of the greatest um, increases in free speech in terms of Supreme Court cases recently. But that line, which I think is pretty easy to draw, is like, you know, when you're when you're in front of the Congress with the picket sign, that's one thing. When you're entering Congress with a nightstick breaking a window, I think it's pretty obvious what the line there and the harming of government officials in any capacity, burning of buildings. This is completely different from protests. I even, you know, I'm someone that never liked the term Occupy when that Occupy movement was around, but I know it's, it's rhetoric to an extent. You know, I think there's something to protest that needs to be temporary and something to protest that um, needs to give that government its reasonable role. In other words, you have a protester and a speaker have your role. You as the government have their role. If these things I'm speaking about are obvious, maybe so. I'll take it. But it just seems to be what was missing in those events of January. With that big introduction, here it is, my cast. Gentlemen, I am here as a representative of the American people in their hour of darkest despair. A plant cannot be made to grow by watering the top alone and letting the roots go dry. The people of this country are the roots of the nation and the sturdy trunk and the branches too. To respond to a menacing crowd in riot formation threatening Washington, D.C., threatening the federal buildings, one president sent the army. The other president sent the first lady. I can think about that contrast a bit. Tragic events, I think. No group, it should go without saying, for anyone who studies history should seize forcibly government buildings. It's always scary. There will be investigations. There will be looks at this. That being said, I'm going to do my normal, my history can beat up your politics thing and look at some history where there's been Capitol building threatened at different times um, and groups that have attempted to occupy at least the lawn and the steps, certainly, of the Capitol going back to 1894, the stairs there. Uh, probably a decent chance in some cases where if allowed, might have been able to breach the building like the events that we saw uh, in the week that I'm recording this. However, in all the cases I'm talking about, there was not only adequate police protection but the mob was seized upon and aggressively dealt with, except in one case, which involves Franklin Roosevelt. That I'm going to also got dicey, but I'm going to talk about that a bit too. But look, there was a fellow on Twitter, and for all I know, he could be one of our premium Patreon members, so could be listening to this. That's fine, David, if you are. Um, but had asked me, you know, to be honest, I think history's getting, uh, you know, beat up by politics these days. And You know, of course, um, one of the things I've said since 2006 is that just because you're studying history, it doesn't mean new events can't happen. History rhymes, right? That's what the, I think it's misattributed to Mark Twain. Even I've quoted Mark Twain on that, but it resembles, it's a tool that you use. I mean, it's never going to go away because 
There's no way that no matter what events happen, even if there's constant newness right happening, you're always going to use history as a measure and assess. So we can throw that out the window that history is of no use. And then also say, you know, that too much history or retreating into a wall of history or like um, Nietzsche, the philosopher, German philosopher of the 1880s and, you know, had a whole essay on this where in German universities, people were starting to dress up like old characters out of old German history. And he found this to be, you know, disgusting. And it was like, history must serve the present. And that's absolutely true. And that's what it is. You're using it as a comparison tool. So it's always going to be useful, but new events are certainly going to happen, especially when technologies change. And in this case, the technology I would center on is social media and its ability to send instructions to people or to direct people without any talking amongst themselves. I'm also reminded of a time I went to the Capitol and several occasions in the mid-90s, I would say, I went to President Clinton's second inauguration, for instance, and there I found... um I was able to walk around the premises of the Capitol building and even stand up on the stairs where President Clinton would, at noon, take his second inaugural oath. And this was about, I'm going to say, 7 o'clock in the morning. I had arrived on a, an overnight bus to get there. Um and I was there on those steps and there was no security or anything like that. And you could walk into the Capitol building at the time. It was just simply a public building, like maybe one of your local town halls might be, that you would just walk through. And then there was just a lot of fire and then there was a lull and they just started screaming, get out, get out. And so we just took off running. Of course, that stopped when there was a gunman who stormed past the Capitol security checkpoint and killed Capitol Police Officer Jacob Chestnut made his way towards the offices of House Majority Whip Tom DeLay, and a detective, John Gibson, told others to take cover, exchanged fire with the assailant, who turned out to be a 41-year-old man from Illinois, Russell Eugene Weston, who was of a kind of a Timothy McVeigh-type person, anti-government. I was sitting next to a family of people who had been pulled out of the actual danger area, and they said that they saw the... um the officer get get shot right in the chest with the first shot. It looked pretty frantic. I was, I was impressed by how fast the um, police responded. It was like the shots went off, and less than a few seconds afterwards, there were cops everywhere. Gibson, the detective, was killed in the exchange. His action enabled others to subdue the gunman. That changed a lot of the security around the Capitol, and from then on, you have to wait in line or be there kind of as part of a tour or some other purpose, some other invitation. But this combination of a group of thousands of people attacking the Capitol, and just in case we think it's some kind of happenstance, there's statements from the people involved. There's going to be an interview in the New Yorker magazine with one of them where he not only says um, that they obviously had intent to push past, not just like slip past or get around some security, but to push and overrun uh, police officers to hurt them. It wasn't easy. This particular person, um, Bobby Pickles, president of the West Palm Beach branch of the Proud Boys interviewed in The New Yorker. I mean, he might find himself subject to some prosecution now, but anyway, he's interviewed. It wasn't easy. We were hit with pepper spray and tear gas. They were trying to keep people out, but we were rushing them. Someone got shot, and someone got hit with a pepper ball in the cheek. It left a big hole, and someone got hit in the eye. It's unprecedented. Call it what it is, an insurrection, an attempt to stop an action of the federal government. Should outrage every American. I hope it will. I hope anyone who encourages it deserves to pay a political price that they might. I think it changes some of the politics right here at the tail end of a Trump presidency. I think I was on the... um. And I think one of my conclusions was that Trump maybe had a clear play here to just kind of say, like, at the end of the election, look, lost an election. It's because of COVID. COVID was kind of a big event that happened, a big event in any presidency. I'm not to blame. You know, this is what he would say. And then in four years, come back. And if perhaps if Biden's presidency isn't good, incumbent elections are always about the incumbent president. So is 2020. So will 2024 be. Maybe comes back. This, I think, hurts the legacy, hurts his political career. He may have other careers, maybe start a TV network. There's all sorts of talk. 
I talk, I discussed that with Chris Novenbrino on a previous cast. This, I think, hurts, though, the political side of it and makes uh, particularly the GOP party have to make stark choices. Democrats a little bit as well, but more so on the GOP side, like where there might have been a pretty large pro-Trump contingent in the party and then just a small group of anti-Trump, maybe not even enough to run candidates in 2024. I think that's changed my guess. There are some other um, events that did occur in history in 1915 in 4th of July. There was a bombing of the Senate reception room. A former Harvard University professor named Eric Munter exploded three sticks of dynamite in the Senate reception room. He explained that he was angry that American financiers were helping England in World War I, despite America's official neutrality. So this was a pro-German incident. Luckily, the Senate was out of session and all that was damaged was a chandelier. In 1954, four Puerto Rican nationalists entered the House Gallery, took out guns and began firing indiscriminately. One waved a Puerto Rican flag. Five House members were wounded in the protest aimed at independence. In November 1983, a bomb went off on the Senate side of the chamber. There were no casualties, luckily. A bomb was hidden under a bench blew the hinges off the door to the office of Senator Robert Byrd of West Virginia. Later, a group calling itself the Armed Resistance carried out the attack, claimed credit, to protest the military's actions in Grenada and Lebanon. Seven people were charged. And obviously, you have a September 11th, where certainly one of those planes that were headed for uh, the towers and for the Pentagon was aimed at the U.S. Congress. And I think that, you know, as bad as September 11th was, it certainly was, um, you can see how that would add even a times 10 to the events had that happened. That was the Flight 93 that was grounded in Pennsylvania thanks to the heroic actions of the passengers. I think one event that's worth mentioning is Coxey's Army. This is in 1894. And Coxey was... An Ohio man, always involved in what you might call radical populist politics at the time. He was involved with the Greenback Party. And the Greenback Party was a split off the Democratic Party that was more radical than the normally 19th century Democratic Party. And that's why, you know, and uh, you hear about the parties changing over time. Yes, but there were different elements within the Democratic Party. The Greenback Party was what Coxey was involved with and wanted a more inflationary money policy. He was an activist, a worker, wanted better, wanted better, and thought that monopolists were crushing the U.S. And when you had the Panic of 1893, there were several of these populist armies, Fry's Army, Coxey's Army, Kelly's Army. Uh, Each one is called General. Some come from California, others from Portland, Seattle. The largest is Coxey's Army and the one that reaches D.C., and that's originating from Ohio. Some are unemployed railroad workers who blamed railroad companies, who blamed President Cleveland's monetary policies for the economic situation, for the great unemployment. The Panic of 1893 is... You know, we've lost the emotions behind the word panic and we think a depression is bad. Well, it really was an equal to the Great Depression in terms of the sheer amount of people unemployed. And so this group and travels to Washington, D.C. from Ohio through the way has rallies in Pennsylvania, big movements. A mob comes to the Capitol. They are immediately met and beaten with clubs by the Metropolitan Police. Coxey himself gets as far as, or tries to get to the Capitol stairs. He wants to make a speech there. I, I don't believe that Coxey's army is, is trying to get into the building, but I mean, it's fair to say that you don't know in, with these events what could possibly happen. But mainly, he wants to make a speech to bring the legislators' attention to the fact that President Cleveland is here with this extremely conservative gold money policy at the time that there's a depression and millions of people are unemployed. They've got 6,000 people sitting in a jobless camp across the river, um, across the Potomac. 
It's really the first serious protest march where people decide to kind of use the Capitol building as a symbol. And Coxie becomes associated with it, and he's actually going to do this two more times. Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism, all while somehow, simultaneously, freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if, instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world? If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics, and NPR anchor Steve Inskeep about the importance of talking to people who differ from you, and what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. One, and this isn't as well known as his 1894 March, is in 1914 when he again does a march from Ohio to Washington, D.C. There's also um, armies from Pennsylvania and New York that come to the protest. And specifically, he asks for government jobs for unemployed workers. His policy was considered radical at the time. He's considered a radical. His family famously, you know, just thought he was a loudmouth. But after the New Deal, many of what had been radical ideas in 1894 and 1914 are now part of government policy in the Roosevelt administration. And Coxie actually is invited now to come to the Capitol in 1944 and read his original petition, the so-called boot petition from the steps of the Capitol. A more perilous situation was the Bonus Army of 1932 during Herbert Hoover's Herbert Hoover's administration, and they also march on Washington. They have 43,000 people in a camp right across the river from Washington where unemployed workers are. 17,000 of them are former World War I veterans together with their families and affiliated groups. They're demanding an early cash redemption of service certificates. So when they served in World War I um, and immediately coming back, the first thing that happens, there's a recession. And many of these veterans want their bonuses. And this is where the American Foreign Legion is formed. When you see that AFL, that comes right out of World War I. These troops who had served in foreign lands wanted their bonus. President Harding's against it. He suffers a political price in the 22 midterms for being against it. Some of his own Republican Party votes against Harding, condemns Harding. Um, Veterans do not like Harding. Over Harding's veto, Congress passes legislation that at least gets them bonuses in 1945. 
So they have these certificates that are totally worthless until 1945. So you reach 1932, there's another recession, a depression going on, and you have many of these World War I veterans who do not have jobs, and they decide to take their grievances to the White House as well, and as already unemployed workers in Anacosta. They want immediate cash payment of these certificates. Forget 45. There's bad circumstances now. We need these paid. President Herbert Hoover reacts. He determines that this group is a national security threat and orders Army Chief of Staff at that point, Douglas MacArthur, to command a contingent of infantry and cavalry, including tanks that had previously served in World War I. And this is going to be the beginning, not the only use of it, but the beginning of the tank as not only a weapon in the battlefield, but a weapon in civilian life to put down insurrections. It's also going to be used in Great Britain to put down insurrections there. And so you see the changing nature. They get six tanks, hundreds of soldiers, and attack the Bonus Army camp and drive them out. In the midst of this, an interesting event happens. And that is one of the marchers is Joseph Angelo. He had been awarded the Distinguished Service Cross for actions in France in September 1918. At that time, a Douglas MacArthur is a colonel. He's commanding a tank unit. They're trying to get rid of a German machine gun nest, and they cannot. And the tanks get stuck. Angelo is taking a shovel and digging out tanks and doing all sorts of heroic actions under fire. An entire group of 15 men set to take out the machine gun nest are killed. So, you know, MacArthur says, get the men and take out the nest. And Angelo's like, I'm sorry, sir, they're all gone. MacArthur charges the nest himself to try to take it out and is shot in the leg. Angelo carries him back to one of the tanks and and basically saves his life. Now Joseph Angelo in 1932, all these years later, is one of these marchers. He never received, uh, he never had the career that MacArthur had. He didn't receive much out of his service. All he has are these certificates. He's been unemployed. He pleads with MacArthur to please, you know, not go through with the attack on the Bonus Army camp. And Douglas MacArthur turns and says, I don't know this man, and orders his aides to take him away. He later tells friends, of course he knew Joseph Angelo, of course he knew what he did. He's been, had been supporting him many times, had sent money and things like that, and would continue to do so, but could not have him stop the instructions there. You know, that's always been a black stain on MacArthur's reputation is what he did with the Bonus Army, particularly for those who served in World War I. But nonetheless, Hoover clears the camp out, and there are there's newsreel of this, there's articles about this. Certainly, it's something that Democrats seize upon, that this is what Hoover's doing to America. It's definitely a sad part of the end of the Hoover administration and the election of 32. It's a factor. The people of this country are the roots of the nation, and the sturdy trunk, and the branches too. But in 1933, after Roosevelt's sworn in, the bonus um, army marchers come right back. They have high expectations. In 1933, March, right before Roosevelt is inaugurated, A government for the greatest good of the greatest number. MGM puts out a movie called Gabriel Over the White House. Now, if you see this movie, it's very much like a... um, And as commander-in-chief of the Army and Navy, it is within the rights of the president to declare the country under martial law. And it's done by the Hearst Corporation. It's very much an example of, like, what a president should be. And it's also a little bit of, like, Aaron Sorkin-type putting words in the mouth of a character about past events that are, like, so perfect because you already know what the right answer is, right? In other words, uh, this this Gabriel, this president, just does everything right. You know, he solves the, the nation's debt crisis with the European powers, tells them to stop building so many battleships. He, ex- you know, increases the Air Force so that the United States can protect itself and not have to worry about another war. And in terms of the bonus army workers, he creates an army of construction to give these workers jobs and the like. Um, so Roosevelt definitely has his act to get, you know, um, 
his example set for him, right? Um, but in 1933, when the marchers come, Roosevelt still does not want to spend the money to pay those bonus certificates. Uh, he wants to keep it exactly the same way that Hoover did, essentially. Um, he's got financial concerns. We think back and say, oh, you know, FDR spent a lot of money. Well, particularly early in his term, he's very cautious about that and very afraid of what banks would do or what members of Congress would do. He relied a lot on some Southern conservatives that weren't happy with all of the initial spending. And so uh, he actually vetoed that legislation. But at the same time, he sends Eleanor Roosevelt out to meet the marchers. He sets up a he sets up a camp for them in Fort Hunt, Virginia, provides 40 field kitchens to serve three meals a day, gives them bus transportation so they can go to and from the capital, and entertainment by military bands. And he tries to negotiate an end to the protest. Eleanor Roosevelt visits the site. She lunches with the veterans, listens to them. Roosevelt issues an executive order allowing for the enrollment of 25,000 veterans in the CCC. Now, this is important because the Civilian Conservation Corps is actually intended to be younger people. So this is an, an exemption. It's, they're not supposed to be married people, and they're, they're supposed to be under the age of 25. He creates an exemption for Army veterans. Democrats with majorities in Congress passed the Adjust, Adjusted Compensation Payment Act in 1936, authorizing the immediate payment of the $2 billion in World War I bonuses. They override Roosevelt's veto of the measure. So I think in bringing up a few historical events here, there's no comparison. And certainly what you don't have here is a president egging on and encouraging violence, saying like, go to the Capitol or things like that. Um, you do have a little bit of an involvement in a protest, but that's very much with the idea of deflating the very protest. Um, now, one thing that happens with the bonds is, so Roosevelt, his veto's overridden. He still tries to get the veterans organizations like AFL to say, look, can you have your members hold on to these till 1945? This is going to be a big strain on the government. But it's a time of depression, and most veterans, about 80%, redeem them immediately. Treasury Department then pays about $800 million in cash in 1936 and $700 million in 1937. This is kind of a stimulus program by another name that never gets mentioned and was the result of a protest that two presidents opposed. Obviously, another time that the Capitol was under threat is in 1861. Lincoln's elected. Buchanan's a weak president. He's showing no resolve to put up any fight. And there are plans underway that some of the detectives who are organizing Lincoln's train trip or a part of that pick up on. He has better intelligence than the federal government at the time. Here's what uh, from The Lincoln Inaugural Train by Scott Trostel, which I am using on a recent, on an episode that's coming up. And here's what it says. Lincoln is crossing the country via train and going to as many places with big Republican support as possible to show off the president-elect before he takes office. Everybody can get a glimpse of who Lincoln is. And thousands of people see him. I mean, really... Um, probably a million people on this train trip, the way that it's organized. But there are certain parts of the country, particularly you're getting to the interior of Pennsylvania, and there's supposed to be a route that has him traveling from Harrisburg to Baltimore. And they discover that in that part of the country, right along that line, there could be these groups that were offering protection of the president's train. And this was happening all in all kind of other parts of the country. But of three groups, they found that two of the three were likely conspiracy, um, were, were likely part of a conspiracy to actually disrupt the rail line, prevent Lincoln at best, and perhaps assassinate Lincoln, and then also to take over Washington, D.C. before he's inaugurated and to give the South its independence. Here's uh, how Trostel describes it. Samuel Felton, the president of the Philadelphia, Washington, and Baltimore Railway, an important railway between Philadelphia and Baltimore, had engaged a private detective to discover and reveal the details of an alleged conspiracy to murder Abraham Lincoln in Baltimore. 
February 23, 1861. He recalls the critical situation. This is from Felton. It came to my knowledge in the early part of 1861, first by rumors and then by evidence, which I could not doubt, that there was a deep-laid conspiracy to capture the city of Washington, destroy all the avenues leading to it from the north, east, and west, and thus prevent the inauguration of Mr. Lincoln in the capital of the country. And if this plot did not succeed, then to murder him while on his way to the capital, and thus inaugurate a revolution which should end in establishing a southern confederacy, uniting all the slave states, while it was imagined that the north would be divided into separate cliques each striving for the destruction of the other. The railroad officer communicates this to General Scott and furnishes him with some data as to the other routes to Washington that might be adopted in case the direct route was cut off. One was the Delaware Delaware Railroad in Seaford and thence up the Chesapeake and Potomac to Washington, or the Annapolis and thence to Washington, another to Perryville and thence to Annapolis and Washington. His subordinate immediately had an interview with General Scott, who told him that he had foreseen the trouble that was coming. In October, previous had made a communication to the president, predicting trouble, uh, I should say the president-elect, predicting trouble at the South and urging strongly the garrisoning of all Southern forts. No, actually, this is President Buchanan predicting trouble at the South and urging strongly the garrisoning of all the Southern forts and arsenals with forces sufficient to hold them, but that his advice had been unheeded. Nothing had been done and he feared nothing would be done. He was powerless and that he feared Mr. Lincoln would be obliged to be inaugurated into office at Philadelphia. He should, however, do all he could to bring troops to Washington sufficient to make it secure but he had no influence with the administration and feared the worst consequences. Thus, the circumstances stood for some time afterward. About this time, a few days subsequent, however, a gentleman from Baltimore came out to Back River Bridge, about five miles side of the city, five miles this side of the city, and told the bridgekeeper that he had come to give information which had come to his knowledge of vital importance which he wished communicated to the head of the railroad. The nature of this communication was that a party was then organized in Baltimore to burn our bridges in case Mr. Lincoln came over the road, or in case we attempted to carry troops for the defense of Washington. The party at the time had combustible materials prepared to pour over the bridges and were to disguise themselves as workers and be at the bridge just before the train in which Mr. Lincoln traveled had arrived. The bridge was then to be burned, the train attacked, and Mr. Lincoln to be put out of the way. This man appeared to be a gentleman and in earnest and honest in what he said, but he would not give his name, nor allow any inquiries to be made as to how he obtained the information. Immediately after the development of these facts, I went to Washington and there met a prominent and reliable gentleman from Baltimore who was well acquainted with Marshal Kane, then the chief of police. I was then anxious to ascertain whether he was loyal and reliable and made particular inquiries upon these points. I was assured that Kane was perfectly reliable, whereupon I made known some of the facts that had come to my knowledge. Kane scouted the idea that there was any such thing afoot. He said he had thoroughly investigated the whole matter, and there was not the slightest foundation for any rumors. We should also point out, though, here, that Kane is somebody who did not support Lincoln and thought that the thousand or so people in Baltimore who had voted for Lincoln were the scum of the city. I then determined to have nothing more to do with Marshall Kane but to investigate the matter my own way, and at once sent for Alan Pinkerton, a celebrated detective who resided in the West, and whom I had employed on an important matter. They were drilling upon the line of the railroad some three military organizations professedly for home defense, pretending to be Union men, and in one or two instances tendering their services to the railroad in case of trouble. Their propositions were duly considered, but the defense of the road was never entrusted to their tender mercies. The first thing done was to enlist a volunteer in each of these military companies. They pretended to come from New Orleans and Mobile, and did not appear to be wanting in sympathy for the South. They were furnished with uniforms at the expense of the road, and drilled as often as their associates in arms." became initiated into all the secrets of the organization, and reported every day. One of these organizations was loyal, but the other two were disloyal, and fully in the plot to destroy the bridges and march to Washington to wrest it from the hands of the legally constituted authority. 
Every nook and corner of the road in its vicinity was explored by the chief and his detectives, and the secret working of secession and treason laid bare and brought to light. So, they're going to get around this by bringing Lincoln to Washington overnight at an unexpected time. And as I'll discuss in the other podcast, literally, there's a meal waiting for Lincoln in Baltimore that he'll never receive because he had already been in Washington by the time the meal served. And he actually ends up going to Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, after a speech in Philadelphia. He, you know, had gone to Wilmington saying like, bye and farewell, but they go to Harrisburg and then go back to Philadelphia instead of going down to Baltimore and then overnight transporting Lincoln through Baltimore to Washington, D.C. So by the time any conspiracy would happen, he's already there. We know elements of that story. Um, some Republicans don't like it. They want, and particularly those Republicans who are in Baltimore are not happy with them because they wanted uh, a show of force of Republicanism, not a president transported late at night. Well, you know, um, caution first, right? In any case, like telling all of these stories, it doesn't change what happened in the recent events. It doesn't mean just because a few things happened in the past and you really have to stretch over time um, that it changes anything to do with the future. But it does give you some perspective that there's, you know, the 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 use of Washington, D.C. and its buildings as a symbol to protest things probably starts in the 1890s and continues through today. And then you have many times when there are um, protest groups and potentially potential for violence, usually not in the Capitol. You have things like, say, 1970, right after Kent State, there are enormous, maybe 400,000 student protesters camped out completely taking over Washington, D.C. But here's the difference in almost all of these cases is the adequate protections, barricades, and prevention of um, students entering the buildings at the time. So that Nixon, while he, he actually does go out in the crowd and he's unharmed or anything like that, but, you know, most of the government is safely within barricaded buildings. You have... Other incidents, there's numerous events in the 60s where government buildings are attacked, where um, the Bureau of Indian Affairs is completely ransacked. Um, and, you know, the 60s is really a more violent time than sometimes gets. It's not just all Woodstock and and peace signs. Um, but again, you know, I think the biggest difference with these events and is the, is the police response, which – and the storming of the Capitol that we saw was very weak, noble of the people that were actually on the ground, but the planning for it and the amount of force was very weak and should never be repeated again. That's one way of learning from history. I want to thank you for subscribing and helping me out with the Patreon subscription and the premium podcast. Really a big help. Thanks.